Well, we'll be uh, continuing in our sermon series today, Journey on the Cross. And, uh, you know, it's kind of almost kind of poetic that the song that was sung was one of the first moments that Jesus shared with his disciples as he called them and told them they'd be fishers of men. And now we're actually studying the last moments of Jesus with his disciples. And today is, is one of those pivotal moments, uh, the, the Last Supper that we'll be studying. It's in Matthew 26, if you want to turn there now. But, you know, it's, it's a... It's a, a series that's so important to understand these last moments of Jesus with his disciples. And that's really what Lent is about, is uh, reflecting and having that time to draw near to Jesus and remember all he did on the, clo- the cross and that, that time of dedicated worship and uh, remembrance as we draw closer to him. And really we're focusing on these moments. It's going to be a lot of Matthew 26 in the coming up weeks uh, into Matthew 27. And finally, Good Friday, we'll be talking about his death on the cross. And ultimately, the, the greatest part of the story is Easter, his resurrection from the dead and what that means for us today. But today it's going to be a, a time where we celebrate and we remember that Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And so for those of you at home, um, if you haven't yet had that moment, go ahead and, and prepare for yourselves the cracker or the juice or whatever it is that you could share communion with us. If you're here and you haven't uh, picked up one of these from the back, pick that up at some point here uh, before we celebrate that later. But this is something we do regularly as a church, celebrate communion. Remember this last supper of Jesus and his disciples. But this was really something that was shared with the disciples in a future tense, something that was going to happen. uh, And uh, it points towards what was going to happen very, very soon. And uh, that's what we'll read today. He hinted and predicted many times of what was going to come, this cross that he would bear. But now he's revealing to his disciples that the time is imminent. The time is now. And this is all part of God's plan. As we said last week, the cross was not a surprise for Jesus. It was something he knew was coming, something that he was born to do. And now there's this appointed time that Jesus would soon die on the cross. There's an appointed betrayal that he hinted at last week. And now in today's text, he will come about more clearly to explain what would happen. And the appointed death, the death on the cross, the terrible death on the cross, the, the death of a criminal that he would take upon himself. And in today's text, he'll explain why he's taking that death and what that means for you and I. But we know, as we said, the cross was not an accident. It was a a divine appointment for Jesus. And as we read today, there would be a foreshadow of a cross that he shares this Passover meal with the disciples and explains to them all that would come. So if you're opened up to Matthew 26, we're going to read verses 17 through 30 today. Uh, But let's just take a moment in prayer together before we read. So Lord, we do uh, ask you to... Bless this time to speak to us through your word and especially in the Last Supper, this time of communion that we'll be sharing, that we can remember all you did for us and the great promises that you've given us, the hope we have in you for what you did on that cross and what you have yet to do as you'll return again. But God, I pray today as we, as we draw nearer to you, Lord, that you would draw near to us in this time. And, and just as a Side prayer, God, I do pray, as I was informed before the service, uh, for Linda Campbell, who is a missionary that we've heard from many times in years past. We do pray, as I was just revealed to me, she has a brain tumor. Uh, God, I just pray for whatever the circumstances, the loose details I know, that your divine hand would be over that, your hand of healing, your hand of knowledge, 
And God, as we learn more in the weeks ahead, we'll continue to pray for her. But in this time, God, I just pray as we read that you be speaking to us by your Holy Spirit, working in our hearts for your purpose and for your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's read together verses 17 through 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, when they go to the Mount of Olives. As we said, uh, as we started today, there's really three, three ideas we get out of this text today, that there was an appointed time that Jesus had, there was an appointed betrayal that Jesus already knew about, and an appointed death that Jesus had prepared his whole life for, and now is preparing in these final moments with the disciples. We know as he, he chose this time, that the, the Passover festival would be the time that he went to the cross, and there's a lot of meaning and significance to this. And as he had just previously disclosed to the disciples that soon the Passover was coming, and that he would be handed over and crucified, that they knew that there was this imminence to it. But he says in, in verse 18 that they, the disciples who asked about this festival of unleavened bread and where they should uh, prepare this meal, Jesus says to them to go into the city to a certain man and tell him that the teacher says, my appointed time is near. And it was there that the disciples would celebrate the Passover in that man's house. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was this ritual from the, the Jews that, that went all the way back to the time of the Exodus. And it, it's a remembrance of their time that they hurried out of this uh, Egyptian enslavement, that they didn't have time to put yeast into their bread. And they gathered all they had, and they left. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Passover, they're celebrated at the, at the same time, and they were, and still are used rather interchangeably, that, that they're really the same festival that lasts a week. And this was the first day of that festival, the Passover. 
and was used as uh, the Jews as a time to reflect, to remember, and to anticipate all God had done and that he would do. And specifically, the Passover meal was a really rich moment that everything in this meal had uh, significance, that it was a time to look back on all God had done as they were rescued from Egypt and they were freed from that slavery and the exodus. This is a commemoration that God had instituted for the very first anniversary of that exodus until this moment. About 1,500 years or 1,500 Passovers had been celebrated by the Jewish people up until the time of Jesus. Looking back on what God did in that exodus. It's also a time to remember, to give strength for them in the moment, knowing that no matter what they were going through, that God is working these things together. They spent many generations in slavery in Egypt, but God had this perfect plan to deliver them. And so it gives them that strength, no matter how difficult their circumstances, that God is always working. But it's also a time, and this is really important, that these roughly 1,500 Passovers that were celebrated were steeped in future hope of the Messiah that would come. And they followed this tradition or this liturgy called the Haggadah. And it's kind of an order of service, if you will, for the Seder meal or for the Passover meal. And it always ended in this idea, this saying that this year we celebrate Passover in the land of bondage, but next year in the land of promise. And up until this point, they would always end the meal saying, maybe the Messiah will come for next Passover. They even left an empty chair at the table for Elijah, the prophet who was going to come back to prepare the way for the coming Lord. There's this future focus to all of these Passover meals that had been celebrated, and they're looking distinctly for the Messiah to come. So that's where we understand that the Passover meal was a perfect time for Jesus to reveal to his disciples what he had come to do. That Jesus was, in fact, this Messiah that they had been waiting for for thousands of years. And so these disciples asking Jesus, where should we uh, prepare this Passover meal? They, they were sent to prepare that meal, but we understand they weren't truly prepared for what was about to happen at this meal. But a couple of important notes here is that Jesus had been planning this for a while, somewhat in secrecy. He had an arrangement already built with this man in Jerusalem. And there's a couple important parts about the Passover meal. At first is that the, the Passover meal needed to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem because it, an important part of that meal was the Passover lamb, which had to be uh, killed by the priests, and then that carcass would be taken home to be prepared for the meal. So the true Passover meal had to be in Jerusalem. But we know, as we said last week, that there were millions of people that came into Jerusalem upwards of three million people at times. And so a room that was big enough to hold these disciples would have been scarce. All of them would have been rented out. But we understand that Jesus made this deal with someone in town. We don't know who it is. He must have explained it to the disciples that there's already a room prepared for them to celebrate this meal. This was his appointed time to fully reveal to the disciples what it is he would be doing. And the words that he uses here are important, that are, are lost often in our translations, where he says, my time is near. And this translation says, my, my appointed time. Now, we often use time in a pretty flippant sense of, I don't have the time, or hey, do you have the time? 
Now, that would be the Greek chronos, but this is the Greek kairos, which speaks about a specific time. This is something that everything is pointing toward or a decisive moment in the course of history or in someone's life. What he's saying when he says, my appointed time is near, is that the fulfillment of everything is coming soon. And we're going to have this meal together as disciples for me to explain it to the, uh, for me to explain it to them. Jesus used this moment specifically, not only for what was about to happen, but for what this moment represented. That the disciples were not just preparing any Passover, but a Passover that would eclipse and fulfill all previous Passovers. Jesus chose the Passover for his last meal, not only because it pointed back to the great act of redemption of God, but because it would point forward to the greatest act of redemption. That Jesus on the cross would be our redemption, our deliverance from the world's greatest problem and the world's greatest bondage, which is sin. And he had often spoke of his hour that had not yet come, but now he's saying, my hour is near. It was his time. And he chose the Passover meal as his last meal with the disciples before the cross. But in this text, we read something that was quite jarring. You know, he made it clear, Jesus, many times that he knew what was coming and that he accepted it. But he also starts to speak more clearly about this appointed betrayal that would happen. Now, in order to understand how jarring this is, you have to really see the, the whole context, the real picture of what's happening here. And Jesus had hinted at betrayals before, but never did he have a moment this clear of what was happening. And so we read in the scriptures that evening had come, that the disciples and Jesus were into this meal, and they're sharing this moment together. They're in this fellowship, in this Passover meal, which, by the way, was a meal designed specifically for families. They're sharing a meal as a family. It's kind of like a, a candlelight Christmas dinner that we would have. And it's not just any disciples. These are the 12, the originals, the ones that Jesus called from the very beginning. And they spent three years together traveling in ministry, hearing the teachings and the mentorship of Jesus personally, sharing life together. And now Jesus drops this bomb on them. This is the first time that Jesus explains that one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples, would be the one who betrays him. He starts it out with the words, truly I tell you. Now anytime you hear the words, I tell you from Jesus, you know that's going to be something important. But when he says, truly I tell you, essentially he's saying, stop everything you're doing and listen. Because it's really important that you know this. One of you will betray me. I talk about a mood killer. All of this celebration, maybe the laughter and this commemoration they had of the Passover was probably halted, and now they're stunned and they're sobered. They knew that Jesus would be betrayed, but they never thought that one of them would be the one who betrays, that hands him over to be crucified. Now, we know from last week that Judas, who's eating this dinner with them, already made the deal with the priests for 30 pieces of silver. And we read that he was just watching for the right opportunity to hand Jesus over. 
We don't know for sure that Judas and the priests had a concrete plan at this moment. But Jesus drops this bit of information on the disciples. And we see now that there's a reaction from the disciples in verse 22. First, that they were very sad. And this is another thing that our English doesn't really do justice to, because we often think of sad as just being bummed out or blue. You don't mean me, Lord. Or in other words, I, I could never do that to you, right? Now, this is a moment that's interesting for a couple of reasons. And the first is that we understand that Judas is hiding his plan very well, his deal with the priests. Nobody suspected that Judas was the one who would betray. Except Jesus, of course, he knew. But we also think that this would be a time in this group that they would be looking around at one another and wondering which of you sinners are the ones that would do this to our Lord. But instead, they looked inward. And so much in life, we're so inclined to look for the sin and the fault in others. But instead, they looked at themselves, knowing that any of them could have the capacity to do something like this. Would they give in to severe pressure, to threats of death? Would they be the ones who would see a deal worth taking in a moment, in a lapse of judgment? This is where we understand, before they enjoyed what we, what we know as communion with Jesus, they took a moment to self-reflect and examine themselves one by one before Jesus. Could I do something so terrible? That's a practice that we do today that we're instructed in the book of 1 Corinthians that every person is supposed to examine their own heart before they take communion, knowing we all have the capacity for great sin. One by one, they went to Jesus, except, we assume, Judas. And so now Jesus continues in this, and he announces and identifies, yes, in fact, the betrayer is among us. And he says, the one who dipped his hands into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, some think this is a moment that he and Judas had their hands in the bowl together, and he's now calling out Judas specifically. I don't believe that's true. Most people don't. This is a common expression of the time, and it's really saying if you dip your hands in the bowl together with someone that you share in fellowship, that you consider yourselves kindred, that you're friends with one another. And so he's confirming to the disciples, yes, a friend among us will betray me. And I'm sure at that point in the evening, all of them had dipped their hands in the bowls together. But he now confirms it as someone and offers this warning as really clear. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. He's making it clear that he's not being deceived, that he's going to the cross willingly, that the Son of Man will go on just as it is written about him. He knows. He knows what's coming. But he, and he accepts it. He goes willingly. And as we said last week, the Son of Man is one of the favorite titles of Jesus. It, it talks about the Messiah, specifically in the book of Daniel, uh, the Son of Man has all authority and power and glory. Jesus can or could decide for himself exactly how things would go. But he's doing this willingly out of love and acceptance for the will of the Father. And the woe or the warning that's given here to the one who betrays the Son of Man that it would be better as if you were not born at all. He's explaining that despite God's sovereignty. 
despite that he can and will do anything, man still has an accountability to their own decisions and their sin. Just as Jesus went to the cross willingly, I believe Judas willingly betrayed Jesus. This is something he did out of his own heart. And the penalty was severe. Now this shook Judas up a bit, I think to the point of responding to these claims of Jesus. And so he went to Jesus and said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Now this is where the distinction is really important. All of the other disciples said, called Jesus Lord. And now Judas is calling Jesus Rabbi. Both of these are titles of respect and honor. But Lord is of the divine. Rabbi is really more of an earthly title. Rabbi is teacher. It's someone who could be replaced or refuted or rejected. But to be called Lord means they're divine and unreplaceable. It's the utmost respect, authority, power, and honor. And so that's where we understand the response from Jesus to Judas of, you said it, not me. In other words, your words, not mine. I think the way that Judas approached Jesus revealed his guilt. He would not call him by his divine title, but the earthly title of rabbi. Now, in the other Gospels, we understand that this is the point that Judas left the Last Supper, that he was probably overtaken by his own guilt, or maybe just the fact that he's caught red-handed. And now he's probably going to meet with the priests to explain the plan of we're going to catch him in the garden, which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. That's why I wondered, did Jesus call him out knowing that he would now advance these plans? They were talking about waiting until after the festival before, but now as he... Is he calling out Judas in a way of propelling these plans to make sure his death would come at the appointed time? We don't know for sure, but we know that next Jesus talks very clearly about this appointed death. He takes the bread and the cup to explain his body and his blood. Now, at the end of this uh, verse, verse 26, are four of the most controversial words in the Bible This is my body. And we understand that communion is a time that's meant to unify uh, believers, to bring us around Jesus. But now these four words have created a whole spectrum of belief that have divided believers, that have led to many different denominations, and sometimes throughout history, uh, intra-Christian persecution, Christians persecuting others because of how we interpret these words. And it's important we understand how these words are written today. But it's been debated for thousands of years that we know that while they were eating, Jesus took this bread and he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Now there's some who believe this is to be taken literally, that Jesus was literally offering his body, that the bread became the body, and that today, that that's still the practice. That's more of the Catholic interpretation in some other denominations. It's called transubstantiation. Some believe that it represents, in essence, the body. That's consubstantiation. And evangelical church and and a lot of uh, Protestant denominations believe that it's simply a representation. And I think as you study this, it's very clear that that's what's going on here. That Jesus is using this bread intentionally as a vivid object lesson, just as they had done for the 1,500 Passovers in the years before, that would represent something greater than itself, And that's what they would do at this point in the Passover, is that the leader would take this bread and say, this 
is the bread of our forefathers. Just like that, this is the bread of our forefathers. Did they believe that it was literally the bread from 1,500 years ago? I don't believe so. It was, it was a representation. And it's logical that anybody listening there in that moment would think that Jesus, who was there in his body, was offering the bread, which was also his body. I think it's very clear that this is simply a symbol of what was to come, a very rich and meaningful symbol. But as we read in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told by the Apostle Paul that we should eat and drink this bread and this cup to proclaim his death until he comes again. And that's talking about him coming again in his bodily form at the end of all things. That Jesus' body will come again, but this bread is not his actual body. It's a moment that's certainly speaking about his body, but there's no warrant for saying that this is the body, and that what we take in communion is the body of Jesus. He's giving the Passover bread. He's using this bread to symbolize and foreshadow his death on the cross that's coming very soon. And this is the cool part of the story where it helps to understand the Passover dinner. At this point in the meal, the bread that they were sharing with each other had a special name. It was the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction. And before this night, it was celebrated to remember all the people who were released from Egypt, this generation of people who wandered for 40 years in the desert. If you understand why they wandered for 40 years, it's a journey that should have only taken a few weeks or months. It's because God said, you will wander in this wilderness because of the sins of your forefathers. It was people who received the manna from heaven as they wandered because of a sin that was not theirs. They were afflicted by someone else's sin. And so we're told that every person that was released from Egypt originally sinned against God. And as a punishment, the whole generation would die that that was released. And it would be their children who went into the promised land. Moses was included in that. They were afflicted because of the sins of their forefathers. And so now what Jesus is saying is this is no longer the bread of affliction. This bread represents my body. The body that's going to the cross, the body that would be broken figuratively for all of you. Why? Not because of his sin, but because of the sin of others, because of the sin of the world. He was offering his body as a way to take upon the sins of the world and to take that punishment and their affliction. Jesus went to the cross for the sins of the world. And now as he's broken it, he's explaining that this is not just a simple death. This would be a violent and a painful death, that he'd be beaten and clubbed, that he'd be nailed to the cross, that he'd be bloodied and bruised beyond recognition. His body would be broken for me and for you. This is one of those moments for the disciples, I'm sure. They're wondering, did Jesus really mean all that stuff he said? It's very clear that all of it would come true. Jesus would die. And his body would be offered with a great purpose for all who believe, for all who would receive him. He's explaining that he's sharing this bread among his disciples, that Jesus is offering himself for all who would accept the sacrificial death. 
And as was customary in the meal, he went from the bread to the cup. And he took this cup and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, if you celebrated a Seder service or a Passover meal with us here at the church, we've done a few of them in the last few years, you know that there's four cups that are shared throughout this meal, and all of them have a specific meaning and purpose. This is where it gets cool. The cup that was shared this time after you eat the bread is the cup of redemption. He's now saying this cup, which, which represents the redemption, that God spared his wrath against Israel because of the lamb's blood that was shared, now represents my blood, which is the redemption for the world, that all who take of this will be spared of God's wrath over their sins. He's explaining that he, his sacrifice would be, a, that this cup is a symbol and a foreshadow of his sacrificial and redemptive blood. It's explaining exactly what he would do. That he would be the great redeemer on that cross. The great Passover lamb whose blood would spare not just a people at a time, but the whole world for eternity. His sacrifice redeems us from our sins. And it's poured out for our forgiveness. It spares us from God's wrath. And he talks about the new covenant, or the, in this case, the covenant. And all the prophets of the Old Testament talked about this new covenant that was coming. This is after the law was already given. And it was important that every covenant with God was ratified with the blood of sacrifice. And he's saying this blood is the beginning of that new covenant. It's what seals it. So now there's a new relationship between God and his people, one that's built on grace through faith that our sins would be forgiven. Now again, I don't believe this points to the physical blood of Jesus. It, it was revolting under Jewish law to drink the blood of any, anything, let alone a person. This is a representation. And blood represented death. Death with a purpose. Sacrificial and substitutional death. Jesus is saying, I will be dying for you. Verse 29 is the last beautiful moment we're going to end with today. It's kind of a ray, a ray in the darkness, so to speak. And this is where he says that this death would not be the end of his work. Again, I tell you, he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I believe he shared that third cup of redemption with his disciples, and he's speaking about now the fourth cup, which in the Passover meal was immediately after the third cup. And this is what we call the cup of hope. It talks about Jesus, or it talks about God taking out these people for himself and bringing them to the promised land. And now he's saying that this death I'm about to experience is just the beginning of what I am going to do with you. And this last cup of hope that talks about God preparing a place for his people, I'm not going to drink that with you now. I'll share this with you when I come back. That's the hope that we share, that one day we're going to join in that heavenly banquet with Jesus. When he comes and the, and the kingdom is fully established and heaven is on earth, all things are made new that he'll share with us that last cup. The story of God is so perfect and beautiful. 
that everything had significance and, and had importance in that meal. That the disciples who have been celebrating this since the time they, were, they could remember are now celebrating this Passover with Jesus in which it all clicks. This is what it was all pointing to. Jesus is the one who came. Jesus is the Messiah. And now we celebrate communion today for that same reason, knowing that Jesus is coming again. We remember all he did, but we have hope for the future, no matter what we're going through. Now there's quick three takeaways I want to get to before we celebrate communion together. And the first is that we can always have trust in God's perfect plan. I believe that the disciples still didn't fully know what was happening at this moment. And we read in the scriptures that they're still putting things together even when they saw the resurrected Jesus. They weren't anticipating that. We read this story through the context of history. We know how it ends, but we're in those moments today where not a lot makes sense around us. And for the disciples, this is certainly a moment through all human and earthly logic and reasoning, it felt like Jesus was about to lose that is about to be over. But we understand this is part of God's perfect plan. And today we go through our life seeing the things that don't make sense around us, things that seem like they're falling apart. It seems like God is losing. And we have that tendency to just throw up our hands and say it's over. But no will, no plan of humanity can overpower God's perfect will. He works together all things for his good, even the terrible even the betrayal of his friend Judas. And God is in the business of taking the worst and making it perfect. Trust in God's perfect plan no matter what's happening around you. And know, have hope in the future of what he's coming to do. We also know that we, as in the, the example of the disciples, have to understand our capacity for sin. If you're in that business of looking at all the people around you and understanding their faults and, and predicting what they're going to do, Know that you have the capacity yourself, that every heart is hardened at some point, that we all have the capacity for sin, that there's no one perfect in the world. It's not just out in the world. It's in you. At least it has been, and it could be. Know that you have a great need for a Savior, that your sin is serious, and with it comes serious consequences. And that's the third point, is to accept the sacrificial death of Jesus for you. Know that there's nothing you can do to overcome this sin that you've done or that you're capable of doing. But it is the sacrifice of Christ who took upon himself the payment of your penalty that all you must do is have faith in him, not in yourself. Faith in him that you could be saved through his grace. Just as God delivered that whole nation from earthly slavery in Egypt. Jesus delivers the world from eternal slavery to sin. There's no freedom without sacrifice. And we receive the greatest freedom from the greatest sacrifice. Believe in him. Accept him. The Savior of the world hung on the cross for you. That's why we celebrate communion, is to remember that. We often do this not knowing for sure why we do it. It becomes rote in some ways, but I think it's, it's that time just as Jesus, or just as God told the uh, Israelites that, who forgot just days after what, Jesus, what God had done, what he did. They're wandering now for 
just a few days in the Red Sea, and their attitude is, what has God ever done for me? They're delivered, and the Red Sea miracle happens. Just a few days later, where is God? But now he's giving them this Passover meal to remember what God had done, how he had redeemed them, in the same way that he instructs us to share the bread and the cup with each other, to remember what Jesus had done. Look back on that. Find strength in today and have hope for tomorrow. It's a time to remember and appreciate the sacrifice of Christ. As we read in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. The bread and the cup are symbols of what Jesus had done and a remembrance of what he will do. Now, it's important to know that in our church, we don't have any membership requirements for taking communion. So if you're here today or if you're at home, all we ask is that you are a believer in Jesus, that you've accepted that. We also know that uh, we should not take this lightly, that to examine ourselves just as the disciples did before their Last Supper, just as we are instructed in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so in this moment, we're going to take just, just a minute or two in the quietness of your own hearts, just you and the Lord, to examine your heart before him, to become right with him if you strayed in any way, and to appreciate all he's done. Just take a moment of silence now as we examine ourselves. God, I pray that we just take these moments more often to really reflect and to confess our sins before you, to examine our own hearts, but also to remember all you've done, God, that you've done all the work for us when it comes to redemption and salvation. So God, I pray we trust in you more, that we trust in ourselves less. God, as the John the Baptist prayed, more of you, less of us. God, we dedicate this time of communion to you. We ask that you'd speak into the hearts of each and every one of us as we remember you and fill our spirits. We do pray, Lord, for those who have not accepted you and your sacrifice as the sufficiency for their salvation. God, I pray for all of them as they reflect in themselves and understand their own capacity for sin, that they would trust in your sacrifice as the payment for that sin. God, you just say that if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. So I pray for those that have not made that step. They would, they, they would confess you as Lord. They would, they would believe in, your, in their hearts that you raised from the dead after you suffered the death for their sins. They can rest in the hope and the knowledge that they will be saved through that faith. So God, I pray now as we share this moment together as believers, again, that it will be a blessing to you, a blessing to us, as we remember what you've done. I pray this in your name.